Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners, all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, author of A List of the... A list of demonic names, a pocket guide for the paranormal investigator, exorcist, and metaphysical practitioner. Also, Joseph Simkov, author of How to Kiss the Universe, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and this episode is being hosted by, being sponsored by, <laughs> I make that mistake all the time. Ginger Glasser, and Ginger is a tarot reader, and she is fantastic at giving you information that surrounds any type of situation before making major decisions, and you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com, and I highly recommend her. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Charles Christian, and he is an author of a bunch of on a bunch of different topics, and I'm just looking forward to this interview. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Gary, for inviting me on. Um, so uh, what got you interested in these topics? Like, like, Well, first of all, let's talk about what topics you cover in your writing. Right. Um, my main topics, because um, I've been a journalist, so I've written lots of books on technical things that are of no interest to your readers. Uh, but my uh, main area I'm writing these days is on folklore and the weird, the types of things that happen that make you scratch your head and think, did that really happen or why did that happen or how did that tradition start? And um, I've written them about the various parts of the UK, but I'm also got a book coming out in the new year with an American publisher on it's an almanac of witches and sorcerers, and it's looking at witchcraft and sorcery through the ages and some of the leading practitioners of it and what happened to them and what they did. Hmm. So if most of your writing is based on folklore. Uh, I mean, yeah. What is folklore and why does it exist? Like, you know, was it originally intended? I, I mean, some people say it was just intended to, as stories to teach people kids lessons. Mm. Um, I mean, there is an element of that mm. with some folk tales. I mean, um, there's a folk tale that takes various different forms in England um, involving a creature. One of the most popular names is Jenny Greenteeth. And she is meant to be this evil creature that lurks by the sides of rivers and lakes and that she will snatch up naughty children and drag them down to the depths and they'll, they'll drown and be never seen again. And this is, I think, you know, what, sort of a, a nursery warning story that if you don't pay attention to what your parents are saying, as in don't walk close to the, the river, don't fall in, something terrible will happen to you. Uh, so there is that element of them where 
uh, clearly the warning message was the key thing and it's now sort of developed the other way and now it's taken on a life of its own with these monster creatures. But there's also a whole element where it's that area, I suppose, between history and legend. And if you take legends as being things which you know are entirely fictional, such as, you know, Norse gods sweeping down upon people, um, and history as being well chronicled, and, you know, there's dates, and in some instances there's even illustrations. Um, folklore's this bit in the middle, which is rather fluid, and is, if you like, not particularly well chronicled history, and it may well have started with a nugget of truth, but over the years it's got distorted and been handed down over the years. You know, a bit like the joke about fishermen with the fish they catch, mm -hmm. and they say, you know, it was this big, and they have their arms wide apart, and then the next time they tell the story, their arms are even further apart. So a sort of folklore is really history of that sort, where it's it's rather more flexible than you know, the history that you read in books or were taught at school. Hmm. What are some of your favorite folklore stories? Like, which ones really draw you in? Pooh, um, it's a bit hard to say because, because I, I just soak this stuff up and, and love it, uh, to pieces. And, um, I'm just aware of it all the time. I, sp I suppose my, interest is you know where where did the story begin um there's one that i talk about in one of my books and it's about a dragon and dragons are quite interesting creatures in the sense that almost every culture on the planet has legends about dragons and these dragons legends were developed at a time when there was no communication between these different societies you know the dragons in japan nobody had any connection with europe or the new world with their tales of dragons so it's it's you know it's it's a sort of universal um meme in human history um anyway this particular tale uh tells that a rocky outcrop which is a geological formation in a particular bay called Filey in um, the north of England are actually the fossilized bones of a dragon and the story is the dragon was doing what dragons do flying around firing flames in all directions and generally being a nuisance and the locals fed it a large bowl of um, a sort of gingerbread type substance. It's called Parkin in the uh, Yorkshire. It's very sticky. It's that sort of pudding or cake that gets between your teeth and you find yourself going trying to get it out from between your teeth. And the story is it ate all this Parkin, plunged its head into the sea to try and rinse its teeth, whereupon the Locals crept up behind it, whacked it over the head and killed it. And the 
rocks that you see there are the bones of the former dragon. Now, obviously, you can say that's clearly nonsense, you know, that the, the, the whole story. But interestingly, just a couple of miles away in the same bay, there are cliffs that contain fossils and that contain fossils, among other things, of plesiosaurs, which are a uh, dinosaur-era sea monster, which looks to all the world like a dragon with um, a big, long, snaky neck. And quite clearly, somewhere along the line, the two tails have got uh, morphed, and people have been finding these bones of this um, weird dragon-like creature, and it's become then assimilated um, with the tail of the dragon bone um, headland and the tail of the parkin. And so, you know, the, at the beginning of it, there is a nugget of fact. But as the stories progressed over the decades and centuries, so it's become elaborated upon and become a folklore tale now that, you know, you just roll your eyes at and say, oh, that's, that's, that's quaint, and that's interesting. That's the sort of thing that I find intriguing about it. You know, where did these stories start? Hmm. Do you think like that's how all dragon stories started by finding you know skeletons, or do you think every dragon story has a, its own unique origin? I can't speak for some of the other cultures around the world, but a lot of dragon tales, I think, were related to finding fossils and bones of them. I mean, you imagine you are a medieval peasant in Europe. You have no education whatsoever. Nobody in your village has any education. And you dig up the skull of something like a Tyrannosaurus rex. The only person in your village who has any education at all will be the priest. And they will interpret it very much on religious lines and it will be you know the beast of the revelation or one of the dragons that was slain by um saint george or saint michael or all the various other saints who seem to have spent quite a lot of time slaying dragons so there's there's that element i think the other element is that it's real creatures that again have been misreported and missing interpreted you know um things like the komodo dragon which certainly um people traveling in the far east um would have encountered uh that's looks the part of a dragon and it even um has it it even has a toxic um element in its spittle so it sort of spits poison. Mm -hmm. You know, well, that's, that's something that sounds miraculous and weird. And things like, um, crocodiles and alligators, um, some of those are enormous and there's something evil and alien about them. And you can again imagine people traveling back from, um, the Far East or from Africa 
having encountered crocodiles and telling the tale of these armoured creatures that have a big tail behind them and enormous jaws and they grab hold of their prey and they slaughter it. So, you, you know, that, that, that there's, if you like, several different sources that will, would fuel the, um, the beliefs in it. So I know one of the other topics that you're well versed in is werewolves. Where did the werewolf tale come from? Sorry about that. Just got my mic cable talk caught up. Um, well, my werewolf tale is um, a werewolf called Old Stinker. And it's called Old Stinker because it apparently had putrid breath. Um, and the tale starts in the medieval times. And the story is that there was a werewolf that was a shape changer. And by day it was a man and it would um, go around markets and inns and see who were tr new travellers in the area. And then by night, it would revert into a wolf form and lead a pack of wolves who would attack these travellers heading along lonesome roads in this particular part of the world, Yorkshire again, and then, um, you know, attack them and kill them. And I was always intrigued by this story because werewolves aren't really... Um, an element of English folklore. You know, they're, they're, they're European, um, they're Native American, um, they're other cultures, but not really, you know, they're rare in England. And again, you know, where did the story come from? And there were reports that the werewolf was seen again in the... Um, 18th century and there was even a report when I was a school kid growing up in this area of a truck driver having his truck cab attacked on a lonely road by a huge wolf-like creature. Um, but, but you know, where did, where did the story came from? Well, obviously there was a problem in this particular area with wolves. And indeed, there was a hostel set up um, by a Saxon lord in the 10th century. So, you know, you're talking over a thousand years ago, um, set up a hostel so people could stay there rather than risk being attacked by wolves. Um, but where did the, the transformation bit? Uh, what I find significant is in the year 1066, which is best known in English history for the Battle of Hastings, when the Normans came over. But before that, a few weeks before that, there was the last major Viking invasion of England, and the army landed in the on the Yorkshire coast, which is where this story is um, located, and part of the army marched inland, having burned down the town of Scarborough and um, slaughtered everybody they could lay their hands on. And the leader of the army was a berserker. 
and anybody who's watched the Vikings TV series will know berserkers were people who used to hype themselves up to go into battle, um, feeling they were the embodiment of wild animals. They wouldn't wear armor. They'd just wear, in the case of berserkers, a bearskin um, slung over their body with the um, skull of the bear on the top of their head. And they would react as if they were bears. And another variety, uh, which has a Scandinavian name, I won't even pretend to try and pronounce, um, they believed they were wolves and they would dress in wolf skins. And so this army marched through the area where there were already problems with wolves. And again, you've got to think yourself, you are a terrified medieval peasant hiding in a barn or hiding in some woods, frightened for your life, and you see these blood-splattered people going past in animal skins. Are they people, or are they animals, or are they some kind of hybrid in the middle, which is where werewolf comes from, you know, um, wolfman. So I think that is where the tale of Old Stinker really started out, mm. that it was a, a confabulation of real wolves on the one hand and uh, Vikings, berserkers on the other. Interesting. Um, so how about the full moon element in that story? And also, um, I was reading in your bio that you had done a werewolf hunt. What was that yes. like too? Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, the full moon element, that's interesting because a lot of what we class as um, werewolf law, as in L-O-R-E, a lot of it actually stems from a couple of movies in the 1930s, The Werewolf of London and The Wolfman. And they really started the belief that wolves, a werewolf transformed um, on a full moon. And also the idea that if you shot a werewolf with a silver bullet, mm -hmm. a werewolf would revert to the human it was before. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the full moons are always regarded as having magical properties, not just relation just to wolves, but to anything else. And um, we know that it does have an effect on some people's um, mental state being on a full moon. You know, we have the term lunacy, which comes from Luna. Um, and there's also a long tradition that there are people who can shapeshift and uh, usually they are witches and they will transform into an animal by night and head out and do whatever they're wanting to do. And again, there's a, a lot of stories of people shooting at a hare or something and with a silver bullet because they think it's a witch and the next day they discover that the woman in the village who is believed to be a witch has got a bullet wound on her leg 
So there's again the 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 sort of werewolf bit follows in, and the moon follows in with a lot of other folklore traditions about occult powers and uh, shapeshifters. Um, as for my own involvement, uh, there was about five, six years ago, there were reports in a town called Hull, which is about for 50 miles as the crow flies from where the original old stinker used to be, that people were seeing this very large wolf-like creature lurking along um, an old abandoned industrial canal and that it was had attacked dogs and that it was on the prowl and it was suggested that it may have been the werewolf old stinker now prowling around another part of the country and as I'd written a book about old stinker I got invited by a newspaper to go on a werewolf hunt and to make it all the better um, it, it was on the night of a full moon and uh, we started off met at midnight in an old abandoned churchyard um, the newspaper people wanted the best photo opportunities and thought mm. that would be a good place to do it and then we headed along the banks of this old canal looking to see what we could find and we could see the undergrowth had been disturbed as if some very large creature had been bounding through it and running through it um, over time that it uh, would have had to have been something large and then um, in the light of the spot lamp I was carrying we saw on the other side of the canal two bright orange eyes staring back at us now this is interesting because the legend of old stinker says that it's got bright orange eyes um, that almost look like the rear lights on a, a truck or a car um, and you could tell by the distance between the eyes it was a big animal it, you know it wasn't something small like a fox uh, it was something large and rather scarily when we spotlighted it it didn't run away or hide it tracked us on the opposite side of the river so we were walking along um, on one side of the bank and it was shadowing our movement on the other side of the bank and uh, there it remain for about 15 minutes and then it eventually ducked away and headed off somewhere and I have to say I was very grateful that we had a, uh, a river bank with steep ditches at either side between us and it as to what it was uh, my suspicion is that it was a feral dog but a large dog probably one that somebody had kept as a pet and it had outgrown their house and had been let let loose and certainly the area was a place where there was stuff that they, an animal could scavenge you know i think it would be something like a malamute or a husky mm. something of that nature 
um, which at that time there was a craze for people in the UK keeping them as pets and then discovering that they grow up into huge wolf-like animals with enormous appetites and needing a huge amount of um, exercise and are too much for most people to look after. So I, I think that was what actually happened. But I say, I never actually got close enough. And I'm glad to say I didn't get close enough to see what it actually was. I mean, it could have actually been a, a real wolf that had um, got loose somewhere or, you know, a pet somebody had kept and then realized the error of their ways and let it go. Mm. So how about tales of the walking dead, like vampires, zombies, and, and other forms of yeah. ghosts, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, that's another fascinating tale uh, that I cover in one of my books um, because there is a medieval chronicler called William of Newborough um, who's a historian and was writing histories of the time, but almost as footnotes or fillers on pages, he was reporting elements of um, supernatural occurrences. Now, he, he called them revenants, which was the medieval term for basically the living dead. Um, the medieval view was that um, whereas we see ghosts as being sort of... Um, spirit-like creatures uh, transparent spirit-like creatures the medieval era they saw it more in terms of the dead actually the physical body coming back from the dead um, the rotting corpse if you like their, their term for them was revenant meaning return um, but by the accounts they would fit what we would call vampires or zombies. Um, in some instances, they were just huge, mindless, uh, decomposing bodies. In other attempts, they did actually appear to um, try and attack people and suck their blood, or were thought to, to suck blood. And, uh, say, he, he writes a number of tales about them and how they spread plague around, which may well be an element of where the story came from, you know, of uh, unburied bodies um, spreading disease and plague mm -hmm. and causing more deaths. And there's tales of people going out to hunt down these revenants and they um, hack them down and cut out their hearts and burn them and tales of them opening their tombs where they retreat to during the day and finding the corpses bloated and um, covered in blood. Uh, and again, you know, the, the plausible explanation is that these were just natural decomposition and um, that's what bodies that are buried too shallow would do. And, you know, bodies coming out of the grave, it's because they were only buried a couple of feet below the surface rather than not deep enough 
But uh, as I say, the, 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 the tales started from there, but it was a genuine fear people had in those days that the unhappy dead, um, people who died, and you've got to remember thousand years ago we're the only church in western europe is the christ is the catholic church and they had their views of heaven and hell and sin and purgatory and people who had a bad death as in they died during the course of doing something illegal or committing a crime or um that they'd committed sins and they hadn't had a chance to um, have the last rites and confession with a priest, that they would be unhappy in their death and that they would come out and that they would plague the living. So um, you have these these tales, sort of, again, cautionary tales, that, you know, if you if you don't go to church and if you commit sins then you're doomed to uh, come back from the dead and um, plague the living and all your relatives. Now, what's intriguing is um, not far from where the chronicler, William of Newborough, not far from where he grew up, there is what is now classed as a deserted medieval village um, called Warham Percy and it's being excavated over 20 or 30 years and they recently were looking at the burials in the churchyard and they found that there were 10 burials where the deceased had quite clearly been um, mutilated after death. Um, their heads had been cut off, their legs had been either broken or severed at the knee. In some instances, they'd been buried face downwards. In other instances, they'd been buried with their head between their legs. And these were all um, rituals that were practiced to prevent... Um, certain people coming back from the dead um, again the, they had a fairly simplistic view about death and resurrection and if you were facing downwards then you were pointing the wrong way to be resurrected because you couldn't come up through the air if you uh, had your head missing then you wouldn't know where you were and you wouldn't be able to find your way if your legs were broken or cut off, then you obviously wouldn't be able to walk. And I say this is a, a little small rural village, but it was felt that these particular individuals had done something wrong in their lives, and people were frightened that they would come back from the dead. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of the best re examples found in... English history, um, there's lots of similar tales in the Balkans, um, in areas like uh, Romania and Bulgaria and you know Hungary, areas that um, have more recently become associated with vampires. Um, the belief that 
certain bodies will rise from the dead unless you take specific precautions to prevent them, including staking them through the heart. So, it, you know, it's, 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 it's a, an, an element where there were genuine fears that these things could happen. And these fears we now encapsulate in our fictional tales of vampires and zombies. But for the people of the time, they had a genuine concern that this would be an issue for them. I mean, it's the same reason why you hear of people being buried at a crossroads or uh, you know, the idea being that if they did rise from the grave, they wouldn't, they'd have four roads heading in different directions and they wouldn't know which way to come back to haunt the living who may have been responsible for their deaths or executions and the like. So um, again, it's one of those stories where a lot of accepted fiction today is based on genuine fears these people used to have. Mm. Um, how about the blood drinking? Well, that that's another one where it's possible to explain it in terms of post-mortem effects that uh, as the body decomposes um, in some instances the skin becomes very red and suffused with blood and can sloughs off the outer skin and looks as if it's blood soaked um, bodily fluids can seep out and again look like blood um the fingernails the hands the flesh on the hands shrink and the flesh around the lips and jaws shrink so the teeth start to look more pronounced and the fingernails looks more like talons and um again this you know if if you dug up one of those they going back again to um olden times where we didn't have the level of education there is today you could imagine someone thinking that this was some kind of blood drinking monster um, and that the fact that the body was in the grave but still seemed to have fresh blood around its face would the only explanation they would have was that it had come from the grave and had been drinking people's blood hmm. Um, how about sea monsters and mermaids? Right. Well, sea monsters are a wonderful story. Um, and with sea monsters, certainly you're into that realm of is there an element of cryptozoology here? Are there actually creatures out there still in the deep that we haven't seen? You know, the, the, the classic example is the Celia camp, the kind of armoured fish, which until the 1930s, um, science believed had become extinct 300 million years ago. Um, and then they found living examples off the coast of South Africa. And they've been found consistently si since. 
So, you know, there is this possibility that there are creatures out there that we haven't found yet, and they've been able to elude us, and that there may well be some kinds of sea monsters. The same goes for something like the Loch Ness Monster or the various lake monsters you get in um, uh, in the Great Lakes and other areas of North America. Um, so there is that element of it. Um, we do know, obviously, things like the Kraken, the sort of giant um, octopus or squid, seems to have an origin in real life in the um, very large squid that live way down at the bottom of the sea and only relatively recently have examples of them being found and recovered and examined by science and they are huge big creatures and uh, certainly the stuff of nightmares and there's also the fact that certain sea creatures such as whales when their bodies are washed upon a shore and they've been decomposed they can look like the sort of classic sea monster outline of a snaky head and a, a large body with flippers so as, as i say that 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 there's living creatures that we know about that can be misinterpreted as being sea monsters but i i'm i'm certainly of the view that there could well be uh, other creatures that are currently unknown to science and only by fleeting encounters of people seeing things that they think are sea monsters. You know, again, there have been so many of them over the years and so many of the reports are by responsible people, not somebody clearly, not somebody wanting to... Um, gain for publicity from it or, you know, cause a sensation. Um, quite sober fishermen and sailors report seeing these strange creatures out there. So I think the, the jury's still out on that one. And I mean, you know, as things progress, we are discovering more and more um, weird animals in parts of the world that previously we would have thought were impossible and couldn't exist you know that, that it's been discovered that there are creatures living at the very bottom of the um, seabed next to volcanic vents in circumstances you know huge pressures that would crush submarines um, with all the stuff coming out from a volcano yeah, it, it, it's supporting life down there you know, only 10, 15 years ago, this was thought impossible. So, you know, who knows what else is lurking out there in the in the oceans? Fascinating. As, yeah, as for mermaids, um, that's, a, that's a difficult one because there have been so many mermaids that people say, look, this is the, this is the body of a mermaid that it's subsequently revealed are fake that have been 
Um, there's one of them where the top half's a monkey and the bottom half some kind of fish and they're being put together. And there was a, um, you know, sailors would create these creatures, dry them out, and then when they returned from their voyages, they'd sell them to, um, gullible people saying, look, this is, this is, this is a mermaid. And, uh, Certainly, exhibits you'll find in museums that once clusters mermaids, uh, they now realise were fakes. Um, I'm not sure the idea that when people say that I didn't get that. Could you try again? That mermaids that mermaids were. Um, were seals or sea lions or anything like that. Um, so I, 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 you know, the, 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 the idea of the, the glamorous looking mermaid, uh, with the fish tail, um, I'm not quite sure where that one came from, whether it's wishful thinking or what. But I say it's, it, again, it's, it's one of those intriguing things because there are tales of mermaids from different cultures and um, we even have tales of freshwater mermaids, you know, a type of, um, you know, water spirit, water sprite. So uh, I'm, 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 I, I can't give an answer on mermaids. There's certainly some odd tales about them and I mean... Not far from where I am now in East Anglia, in the eastern counties of England, um, there was a tale of a merman who was um, captured by fishermen. Um, again, going back eight or nine hundred years, so you don't know quite how accurate the tale was. But... Um, this merman was captured and kept um, in a fort and it would only eat um, raw fish and it eventually escaped and swam away and was never seen again. I mean, it's again, it's one of these strange stories that doesn't seem to make sense. It's doesn't seem to be any point in anybody making the story up because it doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It's just this strange incident. Um, so again, who knows? Perhaps there are other strange creatures out there that um, we haven't really identified. I mean, this 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 whole thing of unknown animals and unknown creatures. Um, it really fits in, if you like, with tales of um, Bigfoot or Sasquatch or the Yeti in the Himalayas. Um, and there's, again, various versions in different cultures around the world. Um, are they just some very large form of ape? Are they some distant cousins of the human race? I mean, we do know that the evolution of the humans species that we have today is a lot more complicated than it was first thought. I mean, the original sort of, if you like, Darwinian idea was that, you know, monkeys and apes um, evolved and started walking upright and eventually evolved into human beings. But we now know that 
along with modern humans, Homo sapiens, we were also coexisting for many thousands of years with Neanderthals. And we also now know that the Denisovans, another species um, whose remains have been found in um, caves in central Russia, uh, another species existed. Uh, the Chinese have discovered um, another species there. Sort of the title is Dragon Man. And then we had that discovery maybe 10 years ago of the small boned creatures living on one of the Indian I Indonesian islands, the island of Flores. And the sort of popular name for it was the Hobbit. This appears to be a normal human being, but only about three feet tall. And again, they coexisted with modern humans and the islanders of Flores say they still exist and still are still living in the woods there, the forests there, and are just making a point of staying as far away from humans as, as they can. So, you know, it's quite possible that there are cousins of the human race still out there that haven't been properly identified, haven't been properly recognized and categorized and scientifically um, indexed, but they are out there, you know, in England, um, certainly in my part of the world, in England, we have a hairy creature known as a woodwoes, and this very much is a sort of European equivalent of um, Bigfoot um, in its descriptions, and there have been reports of people seeing it, seeing a ape-like hairy creature running across a road in the middle of the night and heading from one bit of woodland to the other. Um, and again, this part of the world has got dense forests where creatures could hide. So, you know, again, the jury is out. Are there actually still some species of human out there that we don't know about? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely some possibilities to to that. Um, Loch Ness Monster. Myth, cryptid, cryptid, or there's something that you can already be explaining. Well, again, we're back really with the sea monsters, mm -hmm. are we there? Sort of, that, yeah. um, it, it, You know, that, that Loch Ness is a very, very long lock, and it's a very deep lock. And there's an awful lot of water there, and it's the kind of place that you couldn't just sit up one end with a pair of binoculars and see what's happening. A um, lot of mystery around it. What's intriguing is that the first encounters with it go back a long time and also with Loch Moray, which is nearby. Um, you know, you're going, you're going back to um, people, um, uh, medieval monks having encounters with sea creatures there. 
So again, it's not not something that you think uh, it's 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 a modern hoax. I it's now been pretty much established that the famous 1930s doctor's photo, as they're called, of the monster were a hoax. But was that somebody starting from scratch, or was he um, building upon a pre-existing? tradition that there was a monster there and um you know what better way of proving there's a monster there than making a creation of it and um having a photograph of it you know the what the the origin for it um again um there are endless rational quote-unquote explanations for it including you know otters um water conditions wood, logs, etc. And uh, some of them quite clearly the sightings you can explain away but others you can't. And again, I think there probably is something there. It's just not being found. Um, it might be as the popular idea is it's some kind of um, cryptid or, you know, uh, relic of um, from the dinosaur area back to our plesiosaurs again. It could be something like that. It could be some other form of creature that's there. Um, you know, it's a bit like when people talk about uh, UFOs and the official explanations. They say, you know, that was that was a satellite you saw, that was a um, high-flying aircraft, that was a weather balloon or whatever. But even the most um, sceptical um, military uh, sources will still admit that there is a percentage of sightings that don't have an explanation. They can't be identified. And I think this is the same with something like Loch Ness. Um, a lot of the explanations for it are fairly mundane. But there are a number of sightings that can't be explained that way. And, you know, some of the sonar sightings of things in the water, there's no obvious explanation for what those sonar signals are. It's just detecting something under the, under the water, but they don't know what. So I, I, again, um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say, no, there's no such thing as a Loch Ness monster. I'm not sure what there is in Loch Ness, um, but there is something that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I'd like to kind of wrap up the interview with talking a little bit about your book that's coming up about sorcery, magic, and witchcraft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you believe that that stuff is real and some type of manifestation of, like, quantum physics you know mind over matter kind of thing or do you think it's just um i don't know religious mythology eh, that's a big one um i think a lot of what is is that there's obviously a, a big religious element to it and it's probably fair to say that 99% of the witches that were hanged or burned at the stake 
weren't witches at all. They just happened to be unfortunate, usually old women or old men, who'd made a few few enemies um, and uh, were being persecuted. And there was there was nothing demonic or satanic about them. But there are stories of people apparently having some kind of magical influence and very much the view I get from practicing witches is that the TV idea of, you know, flashing flames from your fingertips and so on doesn't exist. But it is using, I suppose, your psychic psi powers in the same way that um, telekinesis, um, people can use their mind to move objects. It's really all a manifestation of that, that it's a form of psychic power that some people have that others haven't but some people have and they're able to channel it and that there is something there. It's not sort of a supernatural force. It's a natural force, but one that we haven't really mastered yet in the same way that people can um, apparently foretell the future and mind read and things of that nature. Um, is it just, it, is it, it's psychic forces being channeled in a certain way. So there are certainly practitioners out there who believe they have these powers and that they have um, used them and that they've obtained the objectives that they, they want from them. Um, but I say you're into more, I think, the realms of it's looking at magic as more being parapsychology rather than something supernatural. I think that, you know, my opinion on magic is that there's forces innate. I think it starts with intent, honestly. You know, I think if we, we set an intention, then we focus our energy towards that intention, we have a, a chance of actually getting that desired result. Yes, yes. I think it's pretty much that simple, you know, that, that has been now shrouded in ritual and all kinds of mystery. Yes. Yes, I mean, a lot of the rituals used in magic are very much not related to the objective. It's just a ritual for the sake of it, but it's putting you in the, in the zone or possibly um, it just makes people comfortable about doing it that way. But I think, I think there is that, you know, it's, 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 um, uh, having the positive mindset and setting yourself about achieving something. And, I mean, a lot of things, personal development and transformation, again, it's, it's, it's psychology that you can change yourself from being a failure to being a success by having a positive attitude and um, approaching issues in a different way than you'd previously done so um 
but it's instead of getting one of the self-help books, help books that tells you how to do it, um, it's wrapped around with magic, and it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Hmm. Fascinating. So um, before we wrap this up, I want to mm-hmm. thank you for being on. Um, it's fascinating listening to these stories, and I learned a lot. Um, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Right. Well, my books are on Amazon, both .com and UK, and they're available both in print and um, and in um, Kindle format. Um, my two latest books are Shuckland, which is Weird Tales, Ghosts and Folklore of the Waveney Valley, and The Mysterious Wold Newton Triangle, which is all about werewolves and other weird tales. Um, I have a website called Urban Fantasist, F-A-N-T-A-S-I-S-T dot com, and that has links to all my books and also to Amazon as well. And I say I'm down on the uh, Amazon as Charles Christian, and you can find me on the, you know, on an author's search there. And um, the website has all my links to everything you want to want to know and more. And that's where you can find me. All right. And I say the the new book will be out in the new year. It's just in proof stage at the moment. Great. The Witch's Witch's Almanac. Can't wait. I'll have you back on when it comes out. Um, what oh, I'll great. do is I'll put a link to your website and notes of this episode so our listeners can find you, find your yep. books, contact you, give you feedback or whatever. That'd be great. That'd be super. All right. Great. Well, thank you for coming on today and talking with me and just bear with me for one moment while I pay, play the outro. Everything imaginable.